Hey everybody, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder at Majority. My guest today, Ricardo Viramontes, chief creative officer at The Spring Hill Company, the brand and content studio founded by LeBron James and Maverick Carter in 2020. Ricardo's impressive path to his current role began about 20 years ago and includes stops at Wyden Kennedy, where he made legendary work for the likes of Nike and brand Jordan, CAA, where he helped create the iconic Chipotle film Back to the Start, Apple, where he served as creative director, and Lyft, where he was ECD. Ricardo's multidisciplinary work has earned him awards and accolades at every major advertising show out there, including Cannes, where he won the Film Grand Prix and the first Branded Entertainment Grand Prix. In 2021, Ricardo was named to the Adweek Creative 100, a very well-deserved honor. I met Ricardo when we worked together at CAA in 2011, and we've been close ever since. This is my dear friend, Ricardo Viramontes and I, talking to ourselves. It's funny to be talking to you in this capacity because I feel like ever since we first got to know each other a little over 10 years ago, our conversations, our private conversations have more than anyone I know have most resembled sort of podcast conversations. Like we don't <laughs> make true. a lot of small talk. We sort of, we talk about the industry and our careers and we try to think about things sort of in the historical context of people who've come before us and we try to sort of be thoughtful with our answers. And it's why I've always loved talking to you. So it's weird to actually hit record on a conversation with you. Yeah, there's uh yeah, I'm just going to forget you hit record and we can just go at it as normal. This is just another uh, hour conversation in your office. Well, one of the very few downsides of interviewing a close friend who I love and admire and have had so many memorable heart to hearts with is I'm going to have to ask you some questions. I already know the answer to starting with, Ricardo Veramontes, where are you from and what did your parents do? Yep. So I am from a little town about 15 miles north of the Mexican border uh, called Deming, uh, which is in New Mexico, uh, right off the I-10 from where you grew up, not too far, uh, even though I feel like I probably made more trips your way than you made mine in Tucson. But um, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting town. Uh, my, uh, my dad grew up there as well. Uh, he was a uh, coach, uh, athletic director, and eventually he became the superintendent of schools. Uh, so always has had a career in education. Um, actually, he started as a history teacher, um, which is, uh, you know, I think a lot of things that drive my interest are through like their context. And I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. Uh, he had a, something that his teacher taught him that he taught me that that I always kept with me, which was like, he always said, believe half of what you read and question the other half. That was like something, you know, history. He always understood, especially being a, you know, being of Mexican heritage, that history is written by the winners. Uh, and then further, furthermore, being a history teacher, like, hey, there's all these different points of views and angles that are underrepresented. Uh, and, and you've kind of got to search for these things to kind of develop your own picture of what something could potentially be. Uh, and then, and then as a coach, um, uh, yeah, you know, we kind of just grew up going to games. Uh, I think I went to every football game, basketball game, uh, as he was the athletic director, um, you know, uh, travel with him to state tournaments and, uh, you know, so I've kind of always had a life centered around sports and, and being around other athletes. Um, and what then was the my mascot? mother, what was, what was the mascot at Deming? 
Oh man, uh, the Charlie the Wildcat, which is an amazing mascot, like amazing. Uh, it's up there in the rafters with, uh, you know, the Boston uh, Celtic, like it's from that era. It looks so cool. It's a cat who's wearing a, a large sweater uh, with a big <laughs> D embroidered, a sailor's hat, which makes no sense in the desert. And he's leaning on uh, the Wildcat spelled out, but it's Charlie the Wildcat. He's he, it's 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 an amazing logo. I love it. Uh, but uh, yeah, my mom, uh, my mom is also in education, so she's a kindergarten teacher. Uh, both of them were in education for well over forty years. Uh, but my mom is really really interesting because she uh, yeah she inspired so many things that you didn't know she inspired until you get much older. Um, she was the one that always encouraged me to be into art. Um, she always, uh, you know, basketball, sports was my dad thing. My mom was like, yeah, I think you're pretty much more of an art kid uh, if you lean into it. But of course, you never want to listen uh, to what your parents, uh, what you should be doing. Um, but uh, yeah, she was just such a fantastic teacher. And she was uh, really able to get things, get you to understand things on your own terms. Um, so a lot of the, the work she does is almost hidden in that way because you think that you're doing it, but in actuality, she's kind of set you up for success by explaining something so simply on your terms. So she would use like, Hey, you want to do math? Let's go get your baseball cards. Like how did they arrive at these statistics? You know, she was always working within what you had to offer. Um, uh, so she's a very, very, very special special teacher, special lady, uh, and, and just lots of inspiration in, in regards to how uh, we grew up with art. I hate to skip to the end, but I feel like you just described your creative direction style, like uh, unwittingly. It, it, uh, you get that it, from uh, your mom. Oh my goodness. I And I didn't realize it until much, like I said, till much later uh, that, yeah, that you don't want it to be about you. She was always about, she's always about the kids and like and one important thing she always talked about, and, and it was a familiar topic at our, at our dinner table, which surrounded education was, you know, growing up where we grew up, the schools themselves, you couldn't really evaluate kids on the standard of the rest of the country, right? Or whatever the state, even in some cases, because there's so many kids that are transient. I think it was like 50 or 60% of the kids just kind of come and go from Mexico, from different places. It's, it's just, we live in a, in a, in a pretty poor community. So, you know, the same people weren't always there. And when you got someone in your classroom, some of them may have not had the same life experiences or uh, access to education. So my mom always evaluated people fairly. What, who, who were you, where were you at when you started, when you walked in the door, how much did you grow to the end of the year, but you couldn't say like, hey, this is a kindergartner that met the kindergarten standards, you know, like when they left. But my mom was always measuring for growth. And I thought that was just such a fascinating idea to me. So even like when I think about uh, inheriting a team, you know, maybe you come into a situation at work where that's kind of where I started, right? Clean slate, um, where are you when I you started with you and where, where were you as we went? Cause it's just kind of an unfair, just cause everyone comes from different places or there for different reasons or different growth stages in the company. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of things haven't, a lot of things, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, like Chipotle and stuff were directly, 
related to 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 my mom. Some lift work was directly related to my mom. She she actually she doesn't know this, so she when she hears this, she'll be surprised. But uh, you know, she uh, she had a big inspiration on 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 how you govern and how allow people to thrive on their own. You know, without you don't need to be the story. They they're the story. Well, it's funny, even as you talk about the emotional intelligence that you inherited from your mom that you apply to your your work you still used a, a sports metaphor uh, <laughs> and i feel like you know as the son of a coach and then for me like growing up i mean we had we, we made fast friends at caa which was such a fancy place and such a hollywood place <laughs> and i think you and i were just immediately kind of attracted to each other's energy because we're you know we're both kids from the desert we're desert both kids, kids from yeah children from, of the sun Children of the Sun, you know, not the most scenic stretch of I-10 is where we're <laughs> from, and border towns, um, and 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 children of sports. And so I know you're the same as me that you just, it's almost impossible, whether it's the building of teams or sort of the nature of competition mm-hmm. inherent to our job, to run everything through the metaphor of sports. I find it extremely helpful. Oh man, it's only, I only realize it when you start working with people that don't work in sports, how much sports we use to describe everything. Like I even think equated like running the team, you know, I'm the point guard. Like I'm just trying to set everyone up for success. And granted, you know, sometimes you need to take over the scoring load and that's cool because we're there for each other because we're a team or yeah. So there's a lot of things I'm sure uh, we use ad nauseum that, uh, drive other non-sports people crazy. Like, what the hell are we talking about? But yes, we speak in sports metaphors all the time. Uh, young Rick and Deming, 12-year-old Rick, what did he want to be when he grew up? Uh, 12-year-old me, 10-year-old me. Well, actually, 10-year-old me is interesting. I, I was actually, so we live in a town so small that we're actually in the newspaper all the time. So like my wife laughs because we we get press clippings that uh, the bank uh, actually, with someone at the bank, would actually laminate when we would be in the news. And so over the break, we, my mom has saved all of these laminated times we've been in the news. I've been in the news since I was like five years old, if not younger. And uh, that includes everyone in the in in the uh, in the city has been in the news. We were in the news so much that they even sent us articles when we lost by like 30 points, <laughs> which is hilarious that someone would take the time to laminate my name my name and highlight it. Um, but one of the ones we found uh, was uh, when the newspaper interviewed kids on what they wanted to be. Yeah, right around that age, like 10 years old, 11 years old. And uh, I had to broker a deal. Um, originally, I wanted to be Michael Jordan like every other kid. Sure. One of my best friends at the time, Adam Poole, came to me and he said, you know, that's what I'm going to choose. So he would appreciate it if I would choose something different. So a close backup was an MC Hammer backup dancer. is, And, and that's what went into the newspaper is that I really uh, wanted to be, uh, you know, uh, do some hammer time. Uh, you can't touch this type uh, 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 expert in the future. Um but uh, yeah. did that tour did that tour come through? I know that the nearest big city to you was El Paso. I don't know if Hammer was coming through El Paso. I think he was because they had a they had <laughs> in our local downtown. You could win tickets to go, uh, and I got third place. I got the "You Can't Touch This" T shirt. That, that's yeah. as close as I've came to to Hammer Time. But um, it's my but, second uh, yeah, second think... concert I ever attended and very memorable. Oh, for real? Oh, yeah. wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He's an incredible dancer. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as a kid, I grew up, I wanted to do, uh, 
uh, dance. Uh, I did take dance classes since I was a little kid, since I was about eight years old to about 18. So that was something that was very interesting to me. Uh, my parents had one rule uh, growing up around these types of things is that we will sign you up for anything, but you have to start what you finish. So if you have, you want to do ceramics, great, go do ceramics. But once we sign you up, you cannot quit. Um, and you never have to do it again. That's fine. But but as soon as you sign up, you had to stick with it. So uh, we, I did everything from tennis, every single sport, uh, any, anything you can think of, really, that had to do anything with art, I just kind of uh, uh, signed up for. So I, I mostly was interested, though, in basketball, wanted to be uh, uh, some sort of NBA player, as, as a lot of us did at that time. Uh, Nike sold us a bill of goods that uh, if you're an athlete, you know, you can do it. And so I think a lot of us at that time, this is pre-internet era, um, a lot of us at that time had no context for any other basketball players around the country or, you know, you kind of measured yourself against the local crew and what you thought you could do uh, against them. So I think a lot of our dreams were, were centered around around uh, playing basketball and playing in the NBA. Yeah, man, those Nike commercials, same for you as me. I mean, they they, they we sort of categorized them them with our favorite things. We didn't really differentiate them from the world of entertainment. So for me, it was, you know, Saturday Night Live and Living in Living Color, The Simpsons, yeah. Nike commercials. Um, and I know that Nike and those commercials and, you know, those messages that didn't really exist at the time outside of Nike just left such an imprint on kids like us oh who were so God. enamored with sports. And so it's a great transition to, you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit here. You know, you spend a couple of years at Butler Shine and then in 2005, you take a job as an art director at Wyden Kennedy, New York. And just in this context, I wonder if you can just kind of paint a picture of what that job represented to you at the time. And yeah. how might you describe yourself showing up to an institution like Wyden Kennedy that had yeah. such an impact on you? Oh man, it's kind of, uh, it's really interesting the touch points to get there too, because uh, not, not to totally jump too, too far ahead, but maybe even just to go back just a hair, just because I think there was a, a moment growing up in New Mexico that kind of shaped that specifically, which was I had a teacher move from Brooklyn, New York. Her name was Miss Jackson. Uh, and she uh, actually moved next door to us. Uh, and she ended up bringing in this enrichment program to school. And, uh, you know, for the jobs that were available for us, um, you know, you could be a teacher, coach, uh, border patrol, work for the city, you know, these were work, maybe on a farm or, or work in agriculture. So these were kind of the limited choices that we had where, where, where I grew up. Uh, and, uh, and she came in and, and, and kind of recognized one that we weren't going to be very good at basketball. You know, she grew up seeing like Conrad McRae courts and West Forth in New York. And she's like, you know, I, I don't think you guys got it. You know, in our group of friends, we all, you know, obviously wanted to play in the league. Uh, and she said, but did you know that somebody makes Michael Jordan's commercials and shoes? And, and it was just boggled our mind. Like we really thought that Michael Jordan was there, you know, telling people what to do and what his vision was. And uh, she ended up dedicating a semester to advertising uh, while I was in high school. And uh, so we got to visit uh, agency in Phoenix. I can't, I think it was, gosh, I can't remember the name of it now, what it was, but we went to Phoenix and, and she took us all over places. We flew to New York, uh, to Europe. Like we went all these different places, but she kind of just planted that seed that was like, holy crap. 
uh, you know, wow, like I really want to make a commercial or I really want to make shoes. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what graphic design or any of these things are. Um, and so when I went to college, uh, all I was interested in was making those Nike and Jordan ads, just like you mentioned, like uh, when I, if I fail over and over again, that's why I succeed was like such not only a great commercial uh, for Nike, uh, but also as a kid, I was like, you know, I'm going to go try this. Like this meant something to me. Uh, these words that were written, uh, even if I didn't buy the shoes, um, you know, the commercials would stay with you and the message would stay with you. And it was useful outside of its intended purpose, you know, necessary, which was, you know, to sell product or move product. And there was something that was just totally fascinated me about within the world of advertising, how can you create something that's a fair exchange, you know, that I give you some sense of inspiration or humor or whatever those, those qualities are and, 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 and something bigger that you can think about yourself. And so when Widen came around, you could literally say it was the, a dream come true uh, in the sense that uh, it's what I wanted to do since I was 17 years old. Um, it was kind of, it was just kind of an unbelievable call to get. Um, the, uh, <laughs> funny enough, uh, when, uh, Todd Waterbury called, he offered, you know, they're telling you, Hey, we are interested in you. You come out and come interview. The interview goes great. I'm a real basketball nerd. Again, pre-internet. I've read every basketball book. Heaven is a playground swoosh, you know, the, the details that came with that reading wasn't readily accessible. So a lot of those uh, stories were within me about what is New York and how does New York's to fly Williams and all these different characters that have come across the, the, the basketball scene. So immediately they're like, man, you, you, you really know this stuff. You could be helpful on Nike, New York, on ESPN, on Jordan. Uh, I don't know if my book at that time was worthy of working there though. I think I just had a grand enthusiasm, uh, willingness to work hard. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, arraignment ish, type uh, approach to understanding hoops. And so when I got there, uh, well, first of all, I should say one of the funny stories is that after I interviewed, Todd Waterbury calls me back to offer me the job. And I said, yes, before he could finish. He didn't even tell me the salary yet. And I said, yes, like, when do I start? Like, I'm ready to go. And he's like, well, first of all, we want to tell you more about when you can start and here's your salary. And thankfully he was very, he probably, knocked, he probably knocked 2,500 off the original number. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I just went, I was like, I'm in, tell me where to show up. I'm ready to go. But it, it was very intimidating because at that stage, uh, you know, you are going to a place where, where it is the work you love. You're very aware of it. Uh, the standard is exceptionally high. Uh, the people know more about art and design and culture than, than I did. You know, I, I knew about basketball. Uh, and then I knew how to apply that thinking into work generally. I, I still don't think I really had figured out quite how to do that uh, up until that point. But I knew enough about it to to put in the hours to, to, to get the work done and, uh, you know, staying, you know, that kind of trite thing of just staying there to all hours of the night and just kind of just putting in the extra effort to try to win and try to produce work. And so, uh, it was, it was very, very exciting. And, uh, yeah, it was really felt like, uh, it felt like once I did that, it was like, everything was house money after that, because I did what I said I was going to do when I was a little kid, you know, I felt like yeah. I, I won the lottery. I think the hard thing with 
a place like Wyden or a place like, you know, I experienced this starting my career at CPB and I'm sure we, we grappled with it similarly. I'd love to get your perspective on it is you get there and it is intimidating and there's this body of work and all you want to do is just meet that exceptionally high standard as you described it. And so you, you sort of get seduced into feeling like, well, to meet that standard, just talk like them, act like them, mm. present like them, be them, and then you'll make what they make. And then something I think eventually clicks, which is like, mm -hmm. yeah, but these companies aren't stagnant. They're always evolving. And, you know, they're, they're always trying to sort of figure out what their next iteration is. And so your greatest contribution is to be the son of a coach from Deming, New Mexico, mm -hmm. and bring this perspective that doesn't exist in this building. How long did it take you to start kind of finding your own voice within this building or start realizing like, you know, my job is not to sort of imitate my heroes here? Yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting question. Yeah, it is. One, you're walking in, yeah, like, again, like, I, I don't think I was that sophisticated necessarily as a lot of the folks there. And I think Todd did a really, really great job of describing what he thought was the Widen way. Um, he was such a brilliant designer that he actually designed out on paper for us what he thought Widen's ethos was, which is kind of the almost opposite of Widen in some ways. But since I think he just had that brilliant strategic mind of like how to organize uh, the thinking and so uh, in one bucket, he put in what the client wants or needs uh, and, and, and really wanted to take that very, very seriously, that we didn't know better than, their, than people that knew their own business. Uh, in another bucket, he put in uh, what culture wants or what's the zeitgeist. And he kind of always talked about, hey, these two things, if you put them together and overlap them, you can get to some pretty good work. You know, you're doing what the client wants, you're doing what culture wants. But he thought that the widening way was adding in yourself, just like you mentioned, like that the art part of advertising was you, you know, and the personal experiences you had and how you brought those to fruition. Uh, and, and they're kind of things that didn't need to be explainable to anybody else, which I thought was, uh, was very, uh, very smart of him to help also protect art within what we do, that there might be inklings or instincts or gut things that you have inside of you that, that you can't really go and put in a chart or someone's not totally gonna understand. So uh, a good example um, on a, in a small way with one of the pieces we did there on Jordan was uh, we did a, a whole campaign called Become Legendary, uh, which you talked to Keith about that, that me and Andy Ferguson and Josh uh, DeMarc Antonio, who, you know, we all worked kind of as a team, as a trio on, on a lot of that work. And, uh, and uh, you know, we started thinking about, like, as we were developing some of it, like, you know, what did we want to communicate in the world and what did we feel like was missing in, in culture? And at that time, a lot of people are talking about basketball players were kind of weak, like they weren't as tough as other you know, competitors, it's a little bit like soccer until you're like up close and personal. Of course, it's not like football or what you think about hockey, but when you get into the details, you know, and you get up close to it, man, this is an aggressive game. People are, Rip Hamilton is scratching people's arms and there's little Dude, you know where I pushes. learned that? Sorry to interrupt you. You know where I learned that? It's playing pickup with you. I'm like a hundred pounds heavier than you and I would try to back you down and I'd be like, this dude has more 
than the allotted amount of elbows that a normal human being has. Like, how many fucking elbows are in my back right now? Coach's son, you got you learn all the dirty. Coach's son, man, my dad is five eight, and that's all. That's what he taught. That's how he used to beat me and hold me down. So it's only right I, I carried on the tradition. Um, but uh, yeah, just to make a long story short, like you know, and then and then I started thinking about man, this is and this is, has nothing to do necessarily with the brief. The brief is to talk about no become legendary, show all this other talent you know, uh, the zeitgeist was, uh, you know, how basketball players were being perceived. And then I was like, in my, in my space, I was like, I just watched American history X and there's no way can, or, uh, 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 Edward Norton scored a game winning basket. <laughs> like no matter how hard they tried to show him scoring that game winning layup, it's like, this dude cannot play basketball. And it really pissed me off. It, like it really insulted me on every level as a, as a, as a basketball player. So we created this, this, this spot called slap where I was like, we're going to have the F you to all commercials. And we're going to make sure the basketball playing is the best basketball playing you've ever seen in your life. The most authentic, you know, uh, way, the most intimate way you could possibly see the game. Uh, and, and the commercial was really, really beautiful. We organized it around uh, kind of an idea of a battle so it had a wonderful arc. Rupert Sanders made it um, for us. And, and Wally Fister was the was the DP who, who you know, uh, was the DP for Chris Nolan on Inception and, and all his all his films. And that was the challenge. It's like, how do we show this game so authentically? So not something that showed up that anyone asked for, but just something that I really wanted to communicate. And again, this is a business. But yeah, as an artist, that's what I wanted to project. And, and I think we did a, a really, really uh, good job at, at projecting that. Well, and if you're lucky enough to work at one of these places early in your careers, early in your career, you pick up certain principles that kind of stay with you and help shape your style of management and creativity and leadership. I know for for all the sort of principles that may or may not translate from my days at CPB, I always sort of almost on a daily basis, I come back to ideas about like creative tension and writing ideas like press releases and like all this time has passed, but these things mm -hmm. still seem to work. I wonder for you, like, are there mm -hmm. one or two or three things that's like, it's not like I've revisit them once a year. Like I think about these every mm -hmm. day and I learn them at Wyden. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, one of, one of the major ones is that when we were about 25, 26 years old, we helped keep the Nike account for Wyden. We traveled to Portland uh, and we had to pitch and me and my partner were asked to throw, throw ourselves in. We ended up having the idea that ended up keeping the business. And when we came back to New York, we were like, I guess we're done. We did our job. We're the young kids. Like, like you know, it was probably going to give it to a senior team now. Uh, we felt really, really good about ourselves. And uh, when we got back, we had a meeting and they were like, well, you guys need to start getting ready for the shoot. You know, get ready to hire a director. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. Are you sure you want us to do this? <laughs> Like we're 25, 26 years old. Uh, the idea we sold was 10 of the greatest basketball players at that time uh, coming together. Um, are, I'm not sure if we're ready for this. And uh, uh, Kevin uh, Proudfoot, who I believe still runs Google X and uh, Todd were the ECDs. And they were like, no, nah, like this is on you guys. Like if you guys F up, like, you know, we'll talk about it when you get back. But uh you know, there was an expectation for us that we were going to go do this and solve it. And we were so scared. And I'll never forget feeling like 
we were going to mess up. And it turns out that we did mess up stuff. We did mess up a lot of stuff and a lot of the fine details um, were missing. And, and, uh, but at the same token, because they gave us so much accountability, we also made choices uh, and uh, that still resonate now in culture. So we created a song with Joel Santana that uh, ended up playing at stadiums as walkout songs. Uh, a few years ago at a Warriors playoff game, I've heard it still get played at stadiums. Um, but that was because we used our instincts too at that age. You know, we knew what was going down in the culture. Uh, and, uh, and so we were, we, for all the missteps we made, we were able to overstep them by, uh, by also leaning into our strengths, you know, and the real winner in there that I keep with me was not only that, that one project, uh, ended up being really well. And we created that our confidence from that moment forward propelled us because now you felt the weight of being on set. There were no creative directors on set. Um, we felt the weight of doing it. So the next set we went to, oh man, I knew that I didn't prepare in the right way that I needed to that time, the next time. Right. Like I saw what went wrong and I had accountability. So I never made the same mistakes again. So that's something we practice with our team a lot. It's like, you guys go out there and we'll live with the consequences. The questions we're asking are, did you try your best? Did you put in the effort? Did you exhaust yourself with solutions? Uh, you know, did we prepare before you left? Meaning like, how did we go through your concept or uh, did, did, we, did we practice essentially, right? Like, did we get prepared? But then when it comes down to uh, another, another sports <laughs> kind of approach is like, well, now the game is on, that's on you guys. You guys need to go play, let the players play, right? You know, as some of the coaches would say. So I think that's something that, that, that I still keep with me to this day that I always look back to. It's like, what if someone... What if the babysitter came in and tried to correct everything for me? Uh, again, we could have solved, we could have made that commercial 10 times better, but we wouldn't have had the run that we had in making, you know, three, four, five things for Jordan that were really, really fantastic, you know? So now as a manager, are you able to apply that principle from the manager's vantage point and essentially empower your teams who may not have the, the experience or may not be totally ready, but trying to sort of, you know, bequeath them with that autonomy, even yeah. not having full confidence in what the outcome may be. Yeah. We kind of have to, too, particularly in the way our organization is set up because we, we have pro a lot of project work, right. And the project work comes on a weekly basis, let's say two, three, four projects a week. So at the speed we're going at, I think there's two things. One is, a management style that allows for it and, and allows for it to let go thinking like I'm thinking again, like, how do I, it's not about this project and it still can be good. We have people that we can surround them with the director ourselves, uh, their manager. Um, but thinking about how do they, what do they look like a year from now? How am I building leaders out of them since, since day one to do that? And you got to live with some results that may not be exactly what you would do or, Maybe there are mess ups, but we talk about them, right? And we say, hey, this could have gone better. This could have gone. And again, we're looking for the, for the, for the growth pattern uh, to see, did you make the mistake again or not? Um, uh, sorry. And then what were you saying to me before that one, before that? No, I mean, I, I think it's just about how much freedom as a manager 
you're able right, to right, give. Right. And I think, you know, for like, this is your first, certainly not your first manager job, but your first CCO job. And we will revisit some of this. And I feel like this is the number one thing that I grapple with is like, I came, I came up through a very micromanagement um, yeah. structure. And so my immediate instinct is always like, well, just send it to me and I'll write it. Just send it to me and I'll fix it. Yeah. And, and, and grappling with this contradiction of, yes, you need, to, you need to give people the freedom because they'll solve things in ways that you might have never yeah. imagined. But yes, you also need to be a support structure because throwing them in the middle of the ocean and seeing the work for the first time <laughs> when clients are seeing it, you know, we can call that freedom, but that might just be a really, you know, misleading word for not doing our jobs or being lazy. So yeah. I'm always grappling yeah, with this. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Are, are you as well? Do you find yourself oh, kind of with yeah. the same conflict? I mean, there's always like that because it's just fun. I mean, at the end of the day, like, uh, it's just really, really fun to solve problems. So I, I do find myself not struggling in that. I don't have faith or trust in the team, but I just want to get in the game. Like I want to totally. be, yeah, let's go, let's go guys. Like where, where are we shooting? Where are we going to go eat afterwards? You know, how are we solving this problem together? Um, that's always kind of a constant thing for us is like, where do you satisfy, you know, more of the creative side of it? I think where I be become more, uh the the places i like to put more energy in to not let them feel like they're out there in the ocean is in the strategy mm. uh and all the pre-planning you know um that that's where i really like to understand and really pressure is this valuable um why are we doing this what's the why like um all of those types of things if, if i feel good about those things i feel good about the plan I do feel better about letting them learn and figure it out. And again, I go back to that story. Like someone allowed that for me. I want to allow that for them. They can always call me. We can always talk. I think what that also does though, uh, within the parts that are hard or when people do feel like they need uh, more direction is that they're vulnerable enough to ask for it uh, yeah. because you've given them that trust, you know, and you've said to them, like, I'm here, I'm not here to, I'm here to shepherd you through this thing. I'm not here to govern everything you do, you know? And, and I think a little bit of that kind of approach of like service leadership, I think kind of helps uh, build for longevity. Again, like I keep thinking about that, like what is their career and what is the length of their career and, and what are they doing with us? And then how does that apply to the work we're doing? And I think just like this idea of like a mutual benefit for both of us as we kind of try to solve and navigate these problems are, um, is kind of how I try to approach, uh, uh, the management side of it, but that helps me too. Um, but, uh, it's always, yeah, you always want to jump in, put me in coach. I'm ready. Like it's, it's a great point. It's like, yeah. Do you know how many conversations I have throughout the day? That's not about making stuff. If we're talking about <laughs> making stuff, I'm not here to do this because I want to, you know, impose my will on you. I'm here to do it because like, if I overrule you, I promise you, at least in my heart, it's in the service of making this thing the best possible thing. And it belongs to you either way. So, um, yeah, the, uh, one, uh, one place that I know I cannot compete at all. And I tried is on the design side of things. The team is too good. Like right. there's nothing I, I can give them direction, but I cannot jump in. Like I cannot fire up the G3, uh, you know, turquoise Mac and participate anymore. <laughs> Well, Those this days is, are over, man. This is where it gets fun, man. I'm sure you're experiencing the same thing. I, I've been thinking a lot lately about the quote from Steve Jobs that's, you know, you don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. You hire smart people so they can tell you what to do. And I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm experiencing that. 
and um, and and you getting to build your own department um, and kind of instill your own culture. Again, I know we're skipping around a little bit, but like when you say that, that's immediately what struck me. And especially working at a company that probably, you know, it attracts such a high level of talent across all levels where it's like, you know, do you want to go work at the 120 year old ad agency or do you want to go work for LeBron and Maverick's company? Um, and so you're hiring these people and it's like, especially sort of a younger generation that has come up sort of in the post-internet world where it's like an art director isn't an art director anymore. It's an art director also is an editor and a photographer and an animator. And it's like, no, those used to be four jobs. Now you, you know, you meet these people and they have all these skills, hire them. And a lot of them want to use those skills in the evening. It's like in the daytime at my old agency, I was an art director. And then in the evenings, I, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, you know what, you can come do all that shit here. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We named uh, we named our uh, our uh, creative group the Department of Abnormal Results. Um, <laughs> for that reason alone, is that uh, you know one what was inspired by Mav was speaking to us to one day about how we got here collectively, how he got here, and how we all kind of took a path less traveled. And he's like, I never ever, as we scale, want us to be uh, not not abnormal. Like we got here in a weird way, let's continue to be abnormal. And I was like, oh, that would be, that's kind of a funny, funny thing because uh, you know, that's kind of how we've oriented the group. Um, we have hired from fashion, from design, advertising, producers, entertainment writers, copywriters, strategists, and it's with that premise. And I think it's kind of a, a it's kind of been put on us, like what the market demands, both in terms of what you're describing, which is talent, but also in terms of what the audience is expecting. Like they want stuff now uh, and they want quality stuff now. And, and so by consolidating these roles and then kind of understanding the nature of how people create, you know, I keep saying that we're not, we're not competing with ad agencies, marketing, entertainment. We're creating, we're competing with people people are creating entertainment on their own just fine and entertaining, you know, billions and billions of people through all these other platforms where they've been given tools to do so. So if we're to compete and have a point of view, um, we've got to have the same dexterity. We've got to have different types of thinkers. Um, and then also we've got to take on more responsibility as well. Like we have to take the responsibility of knowing a little bit about business, knowing about media, knowing about, strategy knowing about all these other places so we can be informed to make quicker decisions uh and again because i think that's just what the consumers kind of demanding uh from brands or from uh, uh creative itself even the marketers you know themselves are coming to us with problems that are uh not necessarily on the surface easy to solve and we're able to go in there and, and come in with a strategy that you might see at an ad agency um in terms of where we think the brand should go uh, and translating it but then uh, giving them entertainment-like um, uh, outputs, um, yeah. so uh, which is just kind of a whole different uh, way of thinking. So we're kind of stealing from every little place along the way and looking at it and going like, all right, how did this experience where you're from work for you? What was great about it? What was bad about it? For the people from entertainment that join us, a lot of times they get stuff that they hand off, right? So they'll get a piece of writing, they'll do a piece of writing that they're like, great, thanks for the writing. Now we're gonna give it to the other writer. And then we're gonna give it to the other writer and then the producer and the director. And you may never see what you had that spirit for and that heart for, you might've not, you know, you get to see it through. 
And, uh, and I think part of what we're trying to do as well is like, how can you understand the implications of what you write if you don't see and can't be involved in what happens on the back end of that, you know? So we're trying to just kind of steal from, from all these different mediums to try to come up with a new way of working, which so far has been, uh, has been pretty successful, I think. And, and also is very challenging because you can't rest on your laurels because someone coming in uh, from another place that you're not from, everything you thought about, the way you thought about doing something could be upended by how they do things. So uh, we, we love having that kind of challenging environment that has lots of discourse and, and just lots of different ways to kind of tackle problems. We'll come back to Spring Hill. Uh, but I think the precursor to this is you leave Wyden Kennedy after about five years for CAA. That's, of course, where we met. And I wouldn't say this about everybody who worked at Wyden, but I do think there is an alternate reality for you where you could have been a really good Wyden Kennedy lifer. And oh, yeah. all the things that turn you on about creativity <laughs> yeah, above and sure. beyond traditional advertising you could have done at Wyden. But when you when you made that decision to leave Wyden for CAA, what were you looking for that you felt like maybe you weren't getting at the traditional agency experience? Yeah, it really comes down to, uh, we had done a project that uh, they gave us the budget, uh, Alex Lopez, um, who now heads up McCann and, and uh, was a longtime uh, Nike employee. He had, we'd worked with him long enough that he gave us the totality of the uh, budget. He didn't split it for us. He didn't say that this goes to creative, this goes to talent, this goes to media. He said, what would you guys do if I just gave you guys a lump sum? And so uh, we created uh, a character, Leroy Smith, um, who, uh, you know, was, uh, we fictionalized him. He's a real guy who took Michael Jordan's place uh, when Michael Jordan got cut as a sophomore in high school. A lot of people have heard that story. The guy is Leroy Smith. And we thought, wouldn't that be funny if uh, Charlie Murphy played that role? Um, and so we spent a lot of the money on paying Charlie Murphy. We spent very little money on media and we put all the rest in production, but we wanted to create enough assets to put them everywhere. So uh, at the time, this is now normal, but this was like in 2007, 2008. Um, but we created, I believe, 20 minutes of original content. Um, we did a, him as a Twitter character. Yeah. Uh, we we had shoes and clothes, and there's so much shit. There's so much yeah. shit. When I went video to game, when I went to research the, that campaign, which I loved but didn't understand, didn't grasp the full depth of at the time. And when I was researching the pod with Keith Cartwright, who you worked with on that campaign, I just I ended up on this like 40 minute deep dive on all the shit that you made. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And but that was like once you removed the the medium and just let us create, um, then what are all the outputs? And so uh, after that, after seeing that go out in the world, I just wanted more of that. I felt like uh, YouTube, all these implications that we're experiencing now, you could feel is like, what is going to be our role as advertisers when you again, you're competing with people or YouTube or all this content. And like at that stage, again, this is, you know, we'll. TV advertising be effective as effect, you know, all these different kinds of questions were circulating. And uh, the one place I didn't want to be is without a job. <laughs> I still think I was in that Smart. mindset of like, I better not mess this up. Like I better continue to learn and grow. And, and so when CIA uh, uh, came calling, um, you know, they offered up that, that 
kind of uh, next question that I was trying to solve for, but what is content? How does content work? How is content monetized? What does the future of content look like? And sitting inside a uh, talent agency felt like a really wonderful place to, to, to have first row access to it. Um, what surprised me about CAA is not just necessarily that we had that access. If you remember, we also sat in front of these business meetings that were monthly. Uh, so CAA was growing exponentially with different divisions of companies coming in. So you had film finance people and you had our team and you had people that, you know, procured uh, businesses with uh, talent to make uh, iced tea or their iced tea brands in addition to making movies and shows and all these different things. So you had all these different business units and every month Omid and I, I don't know if we wore, we weren't supposed to wear suits where we didn't have to wear suits. I think we sometimes dressed up for those just for fun. Uh, but uh, we'd sit in this auditorium where every business lead would tell us how their business was ran. And uh, that was the unintended uh, thing that happened is that all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, that's how the world works. It kind of felt like, uh, as our, our mutual friend Hector uh, Muelas would say, like, hey, we were just the kids in the corner with the crayons at Wyden, just be crazy. And now we're learning about business. And uh, that just had such a profound shape of what we could be because you kind of felt like you could get ahead of certain things if you knew where those decisions were coming from. We knew what we wanted to do creatively. How could we insert ourselves further up the funnel so that we could actually make decisions that are qualified or opinions that are qualified to determine where we went? And, and, and that was just such a, a brilliant experience in that way. I don't know if it was full on suits. I think every creative who came from an agency to CA marketing had to sort of like, you know, had to figure out how to dress kind of creative, creative business. So some yeah. guys would wear like, you know, a tie with the sleeves rolled up really high. And then some guys oh, would wear un, like unbuttoned, a, yeah, unbuttoned a blazer, a blazer button, with a V-neck. Um, you know? <laughs> man, I just would, I, part of it was, you know, being from a, a, a town off the I-10 in the desert part. And maybe you felt this too. I'd walk into that place and it's just, you know, floor to ceiling marble. And I'd be like, oh, I'd be like, I can't believe they let me show up here. And then I'd get on an elevator with like some Ari Gold power agent in a $6,000 suit and he'd <laughs> give me the smallest look. And I feel like he would be thinking, I can't believe they let this guy work here. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it was always overwhelming. The wealth, the language, the language people possess and how they discuss things or how they discuss ideas. Um, yeah, the cars. So every, you know, they give you a car allowance, which we got. And I was so excited moving from New York. We're going to buy our first car ever. And we're like, dude, let's get the Nissan Murano. Like I, the design <laughs> looks so cool to me. Like I was like the actual shape of the car, what it looked like. And I just remember telling people, they're like, oh, what car are you going to get? Like, oh, I got, dude, I got this awesome design. I kept seeing this design on the street and it's a Murano. <laughs> And they're like, what in the world are you doing? So it definitely, uh, yeah, projected a, a, a sense of, an, of, uh, of authority that uh, could, could feel very uh, intimidating for certain. And that was not a mistake. That, that is exactly how that building was designed to make you feel. The Death Star. And so while at CAA, you were part of the team that created Back to the Start for Chipotle, uh, a story in support of Family Farms. It featured Willie Nelson covering The Scientist by Coldplay. It was called one of the top 10 ads of the decade. It won every single award imaginable. Um, just so creatives can truly understand how an idea starts with 
humble beginnings. Just like, do you have a do you have a, a, a sort of a lasting mem memory of the production of that, or or just something that sticks out early on when you weren't really yeah. sure whether it was going to work or not? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, going back to that formula I told you about, we knew that's I kind of just used that same dichotomy uh, and along with the team, uh, Todd and, and Jesse, um, they really wanted to talk about family farming and uh, and how important it was and how you can raise animals in a certain type of way that was, uh, you know, uh, with, with, with more integrity. Um, and these practices were not so familiar, but they, the problem they were running into is that you had to understand that information and still want to eat. You still had to go want to go to the restaurant. Right. And then, uh, you know, the other side of it was um, at the time, food culture was starting to pop off. So restaurants and, and uh, food fests and, and all these different things where chefs were becoming more tangible and coming back down or, or a little bit more accessible um, was part of the zeitgeist now. And, and so we started contemplating those areas that there might be something super interesting. But going back to my mom, my mom's a kindergarten teacher. So, uh, and I grew up on farms. Um, so if you look closely at the, that, what that is, it's old McDonald had a farm. And the thought behind it was, what if old McDonald, you know, that's the song my mom, you know, we taught when you were kids and you'd play with play school toys. Yeah. Uh, what if old McDonald, we're looking for something universal. What was something everyone could agree about on farms? And that was the one song that came up, right? Like everyone knows this song. Um, but what if old McDonald lost his weight, um, and didn't know it and they didn't want to, they didn't want to make or call account to the farmers cause they don't have a choice. Like they got to work with these big corporate organizations sure. to survive. And so that was kind of the impetus for, for the story itself. Uh, and then as we got into it, I think probably one of the more exciting moments was obviously getting the scientists. And that also uh, was very interesting in terms of, uh, you know, hearing that song, playing it against the cut. We had to cut for a very long time without the right song. We tried writing our own songs. We tried every piece of music. And when we worked with the music house, they kind of delivered us this song. And when you put it on, there was just something quite incredible about the contrast of those two things. But we wanted to take it to another step further. So, um, you know, one of the things that we were inspired by as well is Johnny Cash's Hurt music video, uh, you know, where he, he sings from this older perspective. And I was like, man, you know, who would be that for family farms that could sing that particular song and give it that, you know, gravitas that's needed. And, and, and immediately again on the AM radio every morning in Demi, New Mexico was old country classics and old country singers, uh, which I don't know. I don't know me. Did you get into country when you were, was that just a requisite growing up? I grew up with country music. So Bro, my dad owned a country bar for 40 years. Oh, Jesus, I barked so at, I mean, right. yeah, yeah. I'm so you know like about, my, my uh, favorite Fort artists are like Wu Tang and Nas and Garth Brooks. Like <laughs> I love them the same. That's good. I we haven't had that conversation because no. now I know who to invite. Because I cannot find anyone for the life oh. of me that will go with me to a Garth Brooks concert. But I, I now I know who to call. Um, but uh I will fly uh, and meet you, dude. That's no problem. The uh, we call it, and I don't know if you guys had this one as well, but George Strait is not George Strait where we grew up, he's Jorge Crooked. That's what we would <laughs> no. call it growing up, Jorge Crooked. Uh, but uh, but anyhow, uh, you know, having Willie Nelson do that song was just you know something that 
is epic in its own right, but just, you know, to have such personal touch points or uh, understanding of, of that world and combining these things together was, was something that uh, was, was amazing. We didn't know how good or how good it, you're, you're too close to the work. I think it's once uh, Jay Goodman came into the office one day and said, and he loves all our work. So I still wasn't sure. sure. Um, he's always very enthusiastic about what we made. But he's like, oh, man, you guys have it. This is award winning. And 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 we were like, all right, we'll see. You know, uh, we'll see. You know, and again, we're coming off a of widen. So the standard for work is just the bar is so high that you, you're not sure what you have. You just know you think you have the right ingredients. That's all you're hoping for is putting together the right ingredients. And maybe you have something that will pop off. But I don't think any of us anticipated it being what it was. You know, you know, it landed in culture when when the Deming newspaper wrote about it. <laughs> oh man <laughs> they definitely did right oh man you know i'm not so sure if they did or not but if they haven't they will now they, they, will now. they they'll hear this and do it yeah they'll still yeah. write about you on me they'll be writing about this podcast if this podcast doesn't make the deming newspaper then i'm i'm shutting the i'm shutting the podcast down <laughs> um listen so after a, you leave caa after two years uh after a stop at be real you leave the agency world you go quote unquote client side in 2013, you take the job as creative director at Apple. Uh, and of course, you know, to the creative community, Apple is the most important and admired brand. How different was it from working in the agency world? How did those, and, and I wonder sort of how did, how did those differences change you as a professional for better or for worse? Yeah. It, uh, it was, uh, again, another high bar to meet the work or match the work. I think I learned one of the more important lessons in my career uh, because we came in and, and I'll get to it. I, I should start with like, we came in and they were kind of asking for more narrative at that time, like just trying to see what that would look like for Apple. What happens if you apply some of the learnings from uh, Chipotle or have that type of communication and, uh, and we really pushed on it and we really, really pushed on it, but the company itself was not necessarily set up for that or knew how to evaluate that type of work. So a lot of the early work we did, I felt like was a little compromised in a sense where it was trying to be what Apple was great at, which was product and combine it with storytelling, uh, at that time. And, and I don't know that we were too successful at it. Um, and, uh, we tried to fight it. We felt like that's what we were there for was to come in and, and kind of try these new things. So we, we had a handful of things that actually never saw the light of day. Um, and they were great stories. They just didn't feel like Apple. And so, um, I, I kind of learned not to fight it. And at a certain stage, you have to understand there's a reason why and respect why people love what they love about Apple, you know, it's like going to McDonald's and trying to change the hamburger, you know, like you just don't do that. And so how can you work within the confines of that to arrive at something? And so what I take great pride in was uh, doing what Apple does good with the Apple watch when we did the second or third iteration of the work uh, and played with the media. Um, and that's where we could really have some fun and, and add some inventiveness to it. But the spots themselves are just kind of quintessential what you would expect from Apple. Um, but uh, that was a big learning for me is, 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 is not necessarily, you don't have to reinvent the wheel on everything right. uh, just to reinvent the wheel, you know. 
or to serve our egos. We want to do something different so that we can say we were the ones who it, did something. And different. it's what I like. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually what I like to do. Not necessarily what is, what is best for, uh, for the communication purposes. Well, I think what's so interesting about a job like that is, you know, at an agency, the product is ideas, ideas. So the creatives are technically the product people. And then you go to a place like Apple where the product is phones and tablets. And so yeah. you're no longer a product person per se, you're in the service of product. And so you're having these conversations with this, you know, world famous product design team at the time led by yeah, Johnny they're Ive. Great. Yeah. They're yeah, I mean, so I, awesome too. Yeah. I know, awesome I know people. you got to, you got to know Johnny Ive a little bit. You got to sort of part of the, the process there is they try to integrate marketing with that product design team a little bit was, was observing and working with their product design team. Were there any learnings from that that changed the way that you think about product design for ideas? Yeah. So, so that team, what I, man, what I took away was more the loyalty that they had to each other. I think they went through a streak where no one left. They did everything together. They party together. They hang out together, uh, everything. And then everything was in favor of the art of what they did. They did not, there's no negotiating. Like they really, really, uh, believed in what they did and, and felt the responsibility to bring nothing but the best. And they bring in nothing but the best uh, sources of information to inform them. So, you know, when they're doing the Apple Watch, they're bringing in the experts in watches. They're bringing in the experts in what is time, you know? What, why does time exist? You know, like they're answering these profound thinking that then they're applying back to design. Uh, but the thing I'll, I'll always take away is just the, the family. I, I was actually worked with them I got sent to work with them for an extensive period on a project for Apple watches we were launching. Uh, so I got to spend a lot of time in the ID studio over the handful of months. And, and that's what I'll always take away is just like, wow, like these guys are one unit. Uh, and, and that was just very impressive. Me. It's actually what I wanted for my own team coming out of there where like, Hey man, if this thing's working, I don't want to go by the, I know the prevailing wisdom is people leave, but do they, do they have to, if you like them, if we all like each other, do you have to leave? Right. Or can you figure something out and create a smash of hits, you know? Dude, that's so dope. That's that's fast. That's a fascinating thought. Sort of the the um the chemistry of the team and the love among hey. team members and its yeah. effect on the output. It's a real thing. Yeah, it was it was hard to very, capture. Yeah, yeah, very special. And it also lets you know that you get a run at it. You get a run when you have these special people around you. You get this time that maybe you get lucky and you have the thing that gets you the next thing that gets you the next thing. And if you do, and you have those people just hold on tight as tight as possible and see how long can you, how long can this thing go? You know? Right. Uh, and I feel like they obviously maximized it beyond anyone's wildest imaginations because they changed the way that we literally live, you know, which is just a wow. wild thought, yeah. you know, it's the highest level of it. And when you capture that chemistry, even on a much smaller scale, the the um the seduction of that chemistry is it's such a winning formula that it especially when you're younger it feels like it's going to last forever and then oh, you know man. after we've had 20 year careers where you just you don't realize how delicate these things are yeah, and how yeah. finite these things are and so yeah. when you find yourself sort of in a special environment with special people like sure. you know yeah. like be grateful for each of those days because yeah. it, it won't be, it, may, it may be for years it may be for months it definitely won't be forever they, yeah, they're going to break your heart. That's the thing that sucks <laughs> to know. 
it's like this is going to end in a breakup but that's why i'm like well my job is to figure out you know how to not do that <laughs> but well, listen yeah you've, bro- you've broken up with a lot of great companies too know, and it goes it, yep. it goes both it's, ways it's, it's the natural thing if you if you yeah you, for whatever situation it's the natural order of it all like you got to learn be challenged go to new things hopefully i can give them enough that you know that is a longer stretch of time you know uh that, that, that's my objective, but definitely that's what happens. Let's come back to that topic. It's a good one. So I'm going to fast forward a little, yep. you know, from Apple, you have two years as ECD at Lyft. You do some killer work at Lyft. That segues you essentially to where we are today. 2017, you take the job as ECD at Uninterrupted, which is the, the content-led kind of athlete brand um, platform founded by LeBron and Maverick Carter. And a couple of years later, you're promoted to chief creative officer of the Spring Hill Company, which is sort of the master consumer and entertainment brand um, created by LeBron and Maverick. I guess the first question is because that, you know, that you take the job in 2017, different title, sort of, you know, different, different sort of sector of the company, the company changes. So what was the job when you got there and, and what has the job turned into today? Yeah. So coming in, um, going into uninterrupted, uh, they kind of felt like they were at, at a influx point of like, they're starting to, to create entertainment with athletes, starting to, they've always wanted to give, they always wanted to give a platform to athletes, hence the name Uninterrupted. It came from a LeBron James uh, essay when he was going back to Cleveland um, in that he felt like, you know, there were intermediaries speaking on behalf of athletes, which we know, particularly at that time, was kind of a problem that the only uh, opinion sometimes in the world in t- that was in 2014 when Uninterrupted started was that of a journalist commenting on an athlete. Um, so, um, you know, my job coming in uh, to Uninterrupted was like, how do we galvanize that into uh, something more tangible, uh, both through uh, communication? So how do we actually build the brand and talk about who we are, what we do and why? What is the filter for, for the things we do? Um, and then in addition, kind of start to even build out what does that actually how does it manifest itself into your kind of more design uh, like objects? Uh, and then kind of the third piece of that was like, all right, how do we sustain that through co- creating content, creating uh, content through brand partnerships, uh, through creating white space, but all on behalf of how do we empower athletes essentially? Um, so we, we netted out with this idea of more than an athlete, um, which, uh, you know, ended up kind of serving as a tagline and almost kind of a rallying cry for, you know, the communication we were trying to do, uh, you know, how do we get athletes, um, you know, to expect more of what they are, that they're not just dumb jocks, uh, you know, that they're not just, uh, the, these assets as they're called, you know, when they're traded, <laughs> uh, that they're, they're these fully realized humans and adults. And, and we found that it was always kind of strange you know, you kind of put the kids, kid gloves on with athletes, even though they're grown men in the way that there's, or, and grown women, you know, that how they speak or how they're spoken about, uh, is just kind of peculiar when you attach it to their age, you know, they're, they're grownups. Um, so, uh, again, we wanted to give a place for them to have stories and, and, and our job was just to come in and have some more organizing principles to that thinking. Uh, as, uh, as we expanded, uh, you know, the success of uninterrupted, uh, kind of as this empowerment platform kind of started to, to work its way into what is the potential for Spring Hill Company and how is that an empowerment platform? And I think kind of the center thought was, uh, 
you know, uh, LeBron has always empowered his crew um, and all his uh, friends to, uh, to, to, to be more than they expected and gave them these opportunities that they completely smashed out of the water. Like they're all individually so brilliant and uh, collectively uh, so brilliant. And I think the empowerment they felt is the empowerment they give to us, you know, and give us opportunities uh, to, to do our thing. So the company's kind of centered around that kind of thought. And then the way we actually show up is through our studio uh, partnerships, uh, you know, our space jams, kind of the Hollywood side of things uh, where we could do TV shows, we could do podcasts, um, we could do, uh, you know, anything in the streaming world. Uh, and then we have, uh, you know, Uninterrupted itself, which kind of handles that through the sports lens. Um, and then we have a brand consultancy, which is Robot, uh, which uh, handles more of our uh, uh, brand, uh, you know, traditional brand type of work that we would do uh, with their various clients. So, um, yeah, that's been really, really uh, fun transition um, as we kind of navigate and figure out what that brand looks like. And then how do we, you know, govern the work that comes out of it creatively? Um, what are the set of principles that we're looking at or filters? And then day to day, like I mentioned before, we manage a team called the Department of Abnormal Results, which just gives me a smile to say on its own. And uh, we will work on anything from uh, a, a, a commercial, you know, every now and then we'll get a commercial to uh, a docu-series. Uh, you know, we just sold our first feature length uh, uh, documentary and uh, scripted uh, um, movie. Um, so it really can come in any way or fashion to us. Uh, and then we're kind of uniquely positioned to try to figure out, you know, what's the best people to put on it with their expertise and then come up with really, really interesting solutions for whatever the client or internally maybe what we even want to communicate our marketing team also briefs us on brand things so we really kind of wear a lot of different hats within the organization as it relates to the the, the creative product yeah i mean i want to understand kind of what your day-to-day -day looks like and and how you kind of divide your time between these different interests but i'm guessing the answer is you sort of go where you're needed and some days it's 100 <laughs> yeah. percent one thing and some days it's 30% this and 60% that. But I think when people think about Spring Hill, a couple of the, the things that immediately come to mind are the shop on HBO, yep. um, Space Jam 2, of course. Um, in your role, how specific to kind of this, the pure entertainment side, how do you think about bringing value to these types of endeavors that, you know, are not marketing as we typically yep. think about them, but are actually true owned entertainment properties? Yeah, so we kind of come at it from a different angle, which I, I love in advertising that we've been trained this way, um, in that we, we kind of look for white space as it relates to, to what we can offer. Uh, there's so many amazing experts on that side that have been doing this for so long, and, and they've got it down. They have that pipeline down, how that world works, how they work with directors, how they work with showrunners. Um, so there's not a ton of value that we can bring day to day in that. What we can do is identify opportunities maybe people aren't thinking about um, or stories that exist or things that could be interesting. Uh, and again, uh, as we've learned in our habits, uh, in entertainment, a lot of times the producer or director may have one idea that they're shopping and they're taking that out to um, 
you know, whoever wants to buy into that particular vision, uh, but it's that vision and, and they may move it slightly uh, left or right, but it's pretty much one vision. I think where, where we offer an interesting point of view is that <laughs> we fail at our ideas every day and we're in that habit. We don't have one idea. We have to come with six ideas and then those get sh- shut down internally. And then it we sounds come familiar. Back with six it ideas, sounds familiar. Right? Yeah. yeah, we come up with six other ideas and then we come up with six other ideas and they all have to equally be good. So we're in a great habit uh, as advertising background of just, you don't like pink, well, what if it's blue? If you don't like blue, what if it's, you know, yellow? Um, so I think we're very, have a lot of dexterity in how we look at our ideas and we can change on a dime to answer very unique solutions. I think the other thing that's quite interesting about us, I think there's still a cap to what we can make. Like, I don't think as advertising people, we are quite ready to do a movie. There's people that do that, but things that are shorter oriented in the digital space, things that are 20 minutes and under, things that are episodic. Over the years, we've kind of learned how to put on that brain and really steal from entertainment and apply it to some of our brand thinking. So like our brand studio partnership with Nike is a great example of how do we combine brand thinking and entertainment thinking into one go, uh, which uh, the hardest part for advertising people is relinquishing some control. You know, you will work with a showrunner or producer where they may be the boss, depending on what type of project it is. Uh, and that's always that's always a transition for for, uh, you know, people from advertising. Um, but but overall, you know, we try to contribute where we can uh, and step in where we can. But definitely people with way more experience making movies and such that, that uh, they don't need a lot of our help in, in that in that uh, regard. For sure. Uh, tell me a little bit about working with Maverick Carter. How is he different than maybe some previous employers you've worked for? Yeah, I, I really uh, appreciate Mav. First and foremost, he uh, he prioritized curiosity over everything. Um, and uh, and he also prioritizes what's the right answer or what's the right solution. Um, and he's always just been incredibly supportive of us. Um, sometimes I almost feel like he treats us as talent as well. Um, he treats us with a great deal of respect for our creative backgrounds and the work we do. Uh, and uh, he just has a way of, of finding us opportunities, you know, like we're constantly in conversations with people that, you know, were, would be unexpected, uh, where we may be talking to the founder of that company or CMO, uh, and we're given a platform to come in with our ideas directly to them. Uh, and so he's always hustling on our behalf uh never taking it they're never taking any credit in that but you know uh he's just a, an incredibly uh interesting person great storyteller uh and and prioritizes storytelling over anything so uh it's a lot of fun to work with him high standard as well uh, he's seen sitting i think across the seat uh from on the studio side with these movies uh across from the best marketers in the world and then sitting with lebron i'm sure having Wyden and Nike present to him or any of other uh, LeBron's partners. Uh, it, it's just such a high bar um, in, in what he's seen as well. So uh, we like having that standard and him giving us that standard. As you think about building a staff and building a culture and, and this company is still relatively new, obviously there's so much powerful infrastructure um, at its foundation and at its core, but you know, specific to what they're asking you to do, do you feel like you're, 
sort of incredibly diverse collection of experiences leading up to this job prepared you for this moment? Or did it feel like a job that's sort of like, you can only be so prepared until you actually do it and, and learn from mistakes and uh, learn from both. successes? Yeah, both. I think we're starting to learn what scale looks like, or I'm starting to learn what scale looks like. Uh, and managing uh, through through that scale and and development and and uh, you know getting in front of how we scale, I think a lot of those kind of management structure questions are uh, things that you just have to learn as you go um, and, and respond as you go. Um, and then in terms of the people stuff, you know, I think what we've seen is you know we started off we try to earn we've always tried to earn what we get you know um, in terms of like how we staff. So we'll go out and, and try to win and prove our theory um, of how we think to do something. And then we might get another uh, person to join uh, and then another person to join. And I think our central theory of kind of this creative uh, collective that really can solve all kinds of problems just starts to come to more to fruition the more we hire more people, you know, the more that the vision. So we've just seen as we've hired uh, different different people, you know, again, like we'll have a producer or writer come in and work with our advertising person. And all of a sudden the ideas just go to a different, uh, you know, to a different place and it's starting to get proved in the marketplace. Uh, and that, and that's very, very exciting to see. So, uh, I think it's probably a little of both that we're experiencing learning on the job. And then, yeah, we've stolen from, I've stolen from Butler to the independence of Butler, like, to, you know, this, this rigorous, uh, you know, high bar from Wyden to this entrepreneurship from CAA uh, to, man, a design standard you couldn't possibly begin to understand, you know, with uh, Apple and intent and that idea of intent. And then Lyft, uh, you know, was the second most valuable startup in the world for quite some time. Like thinking about that entrepreneurship and network effects and how, how money is made and how you create, uh, you know, an app that, you know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's one idea that you're doubling down on that can change the way people move. Like that's such an insane idea. Um, each of those stops along the way. Uh, yeah. You just steal from every little piece you steal from your team where they've been and, and, and you kind of try to find new solutions with the ingredients you're given with the given place I'm at now. Yeah. I think of you as such an artist and maker at heart. And of course, being in senior roles means taking on certain responsibilities to sort of have nothing to do with the artistic part of the job that we love, <laughs> that we got into in the first place. There's a reason we got into it in the first place. What's one aspect of, of management that you enjoy maybe more than you would have anticipated? I guess I do really enjoy that strategic understanding of where the team goes, how it operates, how the money works uh, for the team. Uh, how you get money, how you get in front of getting budgeting. Uh, just, just listen to me when I'm talking about this is insane. But uh, just uh, the beginning of, you know, getting in front of these things and how, how does the infrastructure of these uh, different pieces of a business work together on your behalf before you start working? Because if you can figure out those things, then you can kind of shape more of what you want to do. Um, so I found myself kind of pouring my energy into understanding uh, those pieces and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I didn't, I would have never in a hundred years thought that that would be an answer I would give you. 
um yeah even five years ago i'm sure i would have been like you're crazy i just want to make stuff bro i just want to make stuff man just make stuff and then there's this magical path from the making of the stuff to the making of the money and like i don't want to know about it man just 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 (laughs) let's just make things you know but let me do my thing on me just let me do my thing okay i promise it'll be good rick we end every episode with the same three questions are you ready I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. Question number one. What is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? The one that makes me make my skin crawl the most is this is not going to be solved in this meeting. It drives me nuts. And it might be true. It might be absolutely true, but it almost feels like a throwdown. It feels like an insult to me. Are you saying that we can't, I can't solve it in this meeting? I bet you I can. That That's my reaction to that phrase is like, I'll solve it right now. You see. <laughs> Dude, that's so great. You know what? You just like, I've asked this question now, like 56, 57, whatever, like, you know, mid fifties times. And no one's ever given the same response twice. And every time someone gives me a response, I'm like, that's the one. I actually think, I think that's, I think that's the one. I feel like it's a throwdown to me. Like it's like some sort of like some sort of intellectual challenge, even though they don't mean it that way. That's how I take it. No, it's just like, you know, we may not all share your lack of ambition. Maybe we will solve it on this call. Matter of fact, <laughs> yeah. Everybody Why are gets we something here? to drink. Why are we here then? Why are we here? <laughs> Question number two, in a presentation of your work to a client, what is the most horrifying or fucked up response you've ever received? This was horrifying at the time, but, uh, but was actually useful information. And it was from uh, Alex Lopez. And Alex, I was, we, he wanted me to change the, the end card logo. And I was like, you know what? I'm taking a stand. This is where I take a stand for this end card. I can't even remember exactly what it was, but it was something buried in minutia that my, you know, 27 year old brain. Art just to reiterate, just to reiterate, Alex Lopez, head client at Nike. So like, you're, you know, you're locking yeah. horns with the, with the boss here. This is where I, you know, I'm like, I need to make a stand, you know? And so uh so i tell him like we got to do this this is why we do it and he was like ricardo with all due respect this is about zero 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 three percent of what i do every day and you've just wasted my time advertising takes up this much total the rest of my job is marketing and managing this business and you're you just took up a big chunk of what i'm trying to do change the damn card and let's keep it moving and of course my uh, my uh, artistic brain couldn't handle it, but in retrospect, I was like, you know, I totally understand why he was not living and dying with our end card. Yeah, once our feelings stop being hurt, sometimes we realize like those people have taught us incredibly valuable lessons that stay with us forever. And a little humiliation is a nice way for the lesson to stick. Yeah, he was very uh, stern, but kind about it, yeah. <laughs> and the final idea, I wonder if this will also be, have some relationship to Alex Lopez at Nike's Nike, the, the, the final question is the one that got away from any part of your career could be in school. doesn't matter. What is your favorite idea that never got made? It, it's just that idea that you still kind of think about sometimes and man, it was so close, but for whatever reason, it never saw the light of day. My, mine isn't the one that, I mean, it still bothers me. I get mad about this, uh, but it was made. It just didn't have the right ending. Hmm. And it makes me so mad because uh, not that I could have influenced it. I'm not suggesting that in any way. But uh, when we did the scarecrow for Chipotle, um, you know, uh, I had I'd had worked on uh, the initial inklings of the whole thing. And the story was about it was based off Pinocchio. 
So Pinocchio wants to be a real boy. So who is the defender of the farm in that ad is the scarecrow. The scarecrow, the reason we chose the scarecrow is he's the defender of the farm. The only reward for the scarecrow at the end of that was not to sell Chipotle burritos. It was for him to become a real farmer. And it drives me nuts to this day because it was the perfect ending to that. It was already a fantastic spot, beautifully executed. But this would have been the cherry on top of the cherry on top of the cherry. If we had nailed that landing uh, and that ending, I just think it would have taken it to a whole other level. It drives me nuts to this day. It drives me insane. Man, how blessed is your life that you're bitching about a film that like won every <laughs> award in the world and was like the greatest advertising sequel probably made in the 21st century. I mean, just talk about first world problems, right? And, but that's the, that's the attention to detail on me that I'm talking about. <laughs> that shit drives me nuts. <laughs> My friend, you know, when I think about you, I think about a person who defies every cliche of advertising people as loud and obnoxious and egotistical. Uh, you're a kind, egoless, artistic soul. I've loved, you know, I've loved the friendship that we've developed over a decade plus. And um, I've stopped at the Deming, New Mexico Dairy Queen to pee and get a blizzard for the road. So I, I can't, I can't say this with 100% certainty, but I'm pretty sure that you make Deming proud. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much, man. Likewise. Uh, it's always fun. I really appreciate what you're doing with this too. It is a constant resource for me as well. I think in these leadership positions, it's great to hear from all these amazing people and uh, they're not all easy to get on the phone. So it's always a short click away to to learn something new or, or, or add something new to the arsenal. So thank you as well. Thanks for having me, man. Love you, brother. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you to my good buddy, Ricardo. Thank you, as always, to JSM Music and the producer of this podcast, my man, Jeff Fiorello. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. If you're enjoying the pod, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. Post it on LinkedIn, Facebook. Fire up the old MySpace account. Just get the shit out there, man. Help a brother out. And until we talk again, 